Thanks so much, Daniel, and grace and peace to you, Christ Central Church. It's a pleasure, honor, privilege to be here this morning and to take part in this sermon series on the Psalms. And uh, I just should just say after that very kind intro from Daniel that uh, I thought the Ecclesiastes series was fantastic. Uh, now, you just heard from Daniel that I make my living teaching the Old Testament. Uh, contrary to popular opinion, you know, let me assure you that being a professor of the Bible isn't always easy. I mean, it's, it's tougher than you might think. I mean, one very real problem that I face in my line of work is the bad rap the Old Testament often gets. I mean, as you might know, a lot of people don't like the Old Testament that much. And I'm talking about good, well-meaning Christian folks. I mean, you may have had your own share of misgivings about the Old Testament yourself. And it's not like these people don't have a point. I mean, even if they don't know chapter and verse, they're frequently aware of the big issues, you know, the major problems that seem to live in the Old Testament. Things like God waking up on the wrong side of the bed for, well, seems like forever, right? Since this is a real occupational hazard, I've decided to address it directly, taking up difficult texts head on in order to see what might be done with them. Guess what? I just decided that the other day. And so, you know, here we are with my newfound resolve, and here we come to one of the most famous of the difficult texts of the Old Testament. In fact, it may even be president of the club, Psalm 137. Here it is in the Common English Bible. Alongside Babylon's streams, there we sat down, crying because we remembered Zion. We hung our lyres up in the trees there because that's where our captors asked us to sing. Our tormentors requested songs of joy. Sing us a song about Zion, they said. But how could we possibly sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my strong hand wither. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. Lord, remember what the Edomites did on Jerusalem's dark day. Rip it down. Rip it down all the way to its foundations, they yelled. Daughter Babylon, you destroyer. A blessing on the one who pays you back the very deed you did to us. A blessing on the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rock. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. That last bit is what we say here at Christ Central after the scripture is read. It's customary in many churches to respond to the reading of scripture by saying, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. But some people may have a hard time saying that after hearing Psalm 137, especially that brutal last verse. But I believe that this psalm, no less than the others that we've heard during this series, really is the word of God for the people of God. But it isn't an easy word, is it? The real word of God rarely is. 
it would take time to say all that needs to be said to get this psalm said right, more time than I have in this sermon. So I have to try to be economical and efficient, which is hard to do as a Bible professor because I'm used to 80-minute lecture blogs. Now, when it comes to Psalm 137, it's important to point out that despite its difficult status, this psalm is actually a famous psalm. Psalm 137 has inspired numerous hymns, poems, and songs throughout Christian history. Well, the first six verses at least. The first six verses are very famous. These are the ones that are full of grief over destroyed Jerusalem and full of distress over the exile to Babylon because, well, that's where the psalmist is. Alongside Babylon's streams, sitting there, weeping there, refusing to sing for that Babylonian sergeant who can't wait to hear another amusing tune about good old Zion. The Zion that he and his platoon just left a smoldering pile of rubble. Because that's, that's exactly what happened when the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem and forcibly deported a large portion of the population in 587 BC. No wonder the psalmist is weeping. Yes, Psalm 137 is a famous psalm if for no other reason than the fact that it affords us unique insight into this terrible moment in Israel's history, Jerusalem's destruction and the exile to Babylon. In fact, it may be the only psalm in the entire Psalter, the the book of Psalms, that we can date with any degree of certainty because it mentions that mention of time, that moment of time, explicitly. But we need to be clear about something very important. Psalm 137 isn't a history lesson. It's a lesson in prayer. Psalm 137 is not found now in the Psalter to teach us about 587 B.C. It's here now in the book of Psalms to teach us how to pray. The prayer part of the psalm begins in earnest in verse 7 when God is, for the first and only time, directly addressed. Remember, O Lord, the psalmist says, how the Edomites cheered the Babylonians on. Tear Jerusalem down all the way down to bedrock is what the Edomites shouted. And recalling that destruction leads the psalmist directly to consider Babylon and then from there move to the final climactic and brutal verse about bashing babies against rocks. These last three verses of the psalm, the prayer part proper, are why Psalm 137 is not only famous, but, well, infamous. I mean, it's one thing to complain to God, right, as so many of the lament psalms do, but this sort of talk about the psalmist's enemy seems to rise to a completely different level. Or maybe sink to a completely different level would be the better verb to use. It seems downright barbaric to us now, doesn't it? Uncivilized, unchristian. I mean, if we're honest, a verse like this, it sounds like nothing so much as hate speech. I mean, listen to verse 9 again. A blessing beyond the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rock. That is one doozy of a final line. For many people, that verse encapsulates what they think is wrong with the Old Testament, if not the whole Bible. 
in a word, violence, particularly of the divine, religious, or sacred sort. How could Holy Scripture encourage people to bash babies' heads against rocks, some people ask. You may have asked a similar sort of thing to yourself in one way or another. Now, on the one hand, that's a very good question. But on the other hand, it's a wrong-headed question in this specific case because Holy Scripture does nothing of the sort here. To read the Bible well requires reading it with the greatest of care. And while the final three verses of Psalm 137 are definitely disturbing, they most definitely do not tell people to go bash babies. There, there are no commands here, no imperatives, just a sentiment a very strong sentiment to be sure, but just a sentiment nevertheless. A sentiment uttered against those ultimately responsible for the trauma of exile, for the destruction of Jerusalem, and for the death of so many of the psalmist's loved ones. Babylon, here aptly called the destroyer. The Edomites' role in the events of 587 was bad enough, but Babylon... Babylon was the master architect of the psalmist's pain, and so the psalmist's rhetoric escalates accordingly. But what the psalmist certainly does not do is command anyone to bash Babylonian babies. The psalm only says that if or when such a thing might happen, that action would be blessed. Well, I mean, come on, right? I mean, that's bad enough, isn't it? Blessed sounds like religious language after all. Have a blessed day, right? But that impression is actually more apparent than real. For, for one thing, the psalmist nowhere mentions God in this final brutal verse. God is not said to be the one who will bash babies' heads in. Neither does the psalm indicate that the agent of this gruesome vengeance would be blessed by God. The psalmist could have said those things, but the psalmist didn't say those things, and that is very important information. Instead, the final brutal verse has a rather impersonal construction. Blessed is the one who performs this payback, it says. Another reason why blessed in this verse isn't necessarily religious language is because that's not the only nor even the best translation of the underlying Hebrew word that's used here. But if Psalm 137 isn't a history lesson, neither is it an exercise in translation theory. It's an exercise in prayer. Hard, gritty, brutal prayer. And here's the key thing. If we read slowly, carefully, existentially, pausing long enough to listen, empathetically and theologically, if we can do that, I think we can begin to see that Psalm 137, no less than any other psalm, is how the saints pray sometimes. That's what this psalm is, after all, a prayer, just a prayer, not Torah from Mount Sinai, not moral exhortation from St. Paul, and certainly not a terrorist how-to manual. It's just a grief-stricken, trauma-induced, sorrow-wracked prayer to God. And we can understand that, can't we? 
We know similar grief, similar trauma. It may not be as large scale as Jerusalem's decimation or Judah's forced resettlement, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it has been. And even those of us who've been relatively safe and secure for most of our lives, we know about the atrocities that happen every single day in our world, in our cities, in in our neighborhoods, on our TVs, in our phones, sometimes live streamed and videotaped in gruesome detail, even in our own churches. The psalmist is so distraught by everything they've experienced that they utter a curse on themselves if they forget any of it, which means, of course, that the psalmist intends to never, ever forget it. When we remember our own grief, our own trauma, the grief and trauma of our world, of of COVID, of racism, of police brutality, of the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Rayshawn Brooks, and so many others We can understand this psalmist, can't we? And so we also can understand how a psalmist who refuses to forget their beloved home, Jerusalem, also cannot forget what happened to it. The psalmist took an oath to not forget any of that, but now the psalmist prays to God about those responsible for it. Remember them Remember that. Don't forget that, Lord. Which means, of course, that the psalmist wants God to do something about all that. Preferably, immediately. I think we understand that too, don't we? All of us have had hard days to one degree or another. And and we all know people who've had much harder days. People who cannot forget who mustn't forget their trauma, destruction, devastation, exile, people who are praying hard, gritty prayers for things to get set straight again. We may not always like how those people pray, how strongly their sentiments run. But then again, here's Psalm 137, part of God's holy word, telling us that such feelings, such prayers are not unknown among God's saints. In fact, and in truth, such feelings and prayers are widespread, even among God's saints. Proof of that isn't found only here in Psalm 137. It's all over the book of Psalms and the book of Job and elsewhere. Get this, according to the New Testament, it's even found, wait for it, in heaven. In Revelation 6, we read that when the fifth seal of the scrolls open, all the martyrs cry out from under God's altar in heaven. These martyrs are the ones who've been slaughtered on account of the word of God and the witness they've been given. That's what Revelation says. And, and then the text states that these martyrs cried out with a loud voice, Holy and true master, how long will you wait before you pass judgment? How long before you require justice for our blood, which was shed by those who live on earth? Did you hear that? Those are the saints, the very martyrs themselves, praying for the very same thing the psalmist prays for in Psalm 137. Justice. 
God's justice against God's enemies who have wronged God's people. Once in lecturing on this psalm, one of my students politely pointed out to me that two wrongs do not make a right. Maybe not, I replied, maybe somewhat spur of the moment, but praying for God's justice is never wrong. According to scripture, justice is among the most sublime of our Lord's virtues and one of the most fundamental of our God's commitments. Let those who have ears to hear, listen. So that's why the saints, both Old and New Testament varieties, both back then and right up to this very day, pray for payback, for vengeance. And they do so quite literally with a vengeance. If we're honest, I think we understand that, or at least we can begin to, especially right now as we watch the news crawl and social media and all the rest. All of that, all of that experience, it it doesn't answer every question we might have about a text like Psalm 137, but but it helps those of us who are Christians begin to grasp why this psalm is in our Bibles and why it should be in our Bibles. It's in our Bibles and should be in our Bibles because it teaches us how to pray. And it also teaches us how to recognize when other people are praying too. Psalm 137, no less than Psalm 22 or 23 or any other, is how God's people pray sometimes. They pray in pain. They pray in anger, they pray weeping, they pray traumatized, they pray in protest, they pray while protesting. They pray these kinds of prayers in these kinds of ways because, well, really, what else can they do? They pray these kinds of prayers in these kinds of ways to God because no one else in the world can help. Because no one else in the world will help. They pray to God because only God has the stomach to hear this particularly bitter brand of vitriolic, grief-stricken, trauma-induced, curse-filled prayer. And because Psalm 137 prays this way, because this kind of prayer is now found in the pages of Holy Scripture, we have license to do the same to pray the same way when we ourselves are in pain, in anger, hopeless without a prayer in the world. What what do you know? At that very moment, it turns out that we do have some hope because we do have a prayer in the world. We have Psalm 137 and all the others like it. In the end, That's all this psalm is, a prayer. Just a prayer. A troubling, pathos-filled, inspired, and oh-so-understandable, on-time, and useful, right-about-now kind of prayer. A prayer that gives us a script to recite when we are so sick on pain that we can't think straight. A prayer that gives us a way to release all of our anger against all those responsible and aim it full bore, double barrel, point blank, not at them, not at our enemies, but at God, 
who has ears big enough to hear it, who has eyes big enough to see it, and whose body is large enough to absorb every last bit of it so our enemies' bodies don't have to. It's not going too far then, I don't think, to say that in prayers like Psalm 137, we really are praying for our enemies. We're praying for them because we are praying about them. We are praying them into God's own hands. But who knows what God will do with them (laughs) once we've handed them over. Those of us who are Christians and know Scripture a bit know that God may let us down. God may decide to be merciful to our enemies. Forgiveness, alas, is God's prerogative. But so is vengeance. St. Paul, quoting Deuteronomy, reminds us, revenge is my business, says the Lord, which means, of course, that payback is God's job, not ours. As much as we often want to take matters into our own hands when it comes to our enemies, our job is first and foremost to pray. Pray our painful, angry, bitter, curse-riddled prayers about our enemies. But pray them, but pray them to God. Sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, that seems like all we can do. No one else will listen. No one else can help or will. And when we finally do it, we sometimes find that praying like this can transform us. In the process of releasing our anger to God while at the same time holding it back so it doesn't go public, doesn't go viral, doesn't go ballistic quite literally, in that type of praying, God might just teach us some things about our enemies, about our plight, about our Lord. In Revelation 6, up there in heaven, after the holy martyrs beg for justified payback, we're told that each of them was given a white robe and they were all told to wait a little while longer. Sometimes, according to Revelation 6, the saints learn after their prayers for payback, if not in the very midst of praying them, that God's sense of justice, not to mention its timetable, isn't always synced with ours. But only God determines that. All of that is God's prerogative. What God has given us are these psalms, like 137, to teach us how to pray for God's justice. And, And God has also given us the prophets, like Amos, to teach us how to achieve it. I know that what I've said about Psalm 137 this morning is not an easy word. And again, the real word of God rarely is. Psalm 137, the pain, the anger, the praying, none of that is easy. But what did we expect? If we were all together at the Haytai Center this morning, we'd be heading next to communion table to celebrate the Eucharist. What is the Lord's Supper that meets us there if not, in fact, redeemed violence? God's body absorbing the very worst of human anger and aggression and somehow giving it back to us. Cleaned up. Fixed up. 
redeemed. That's not simple stuff. It's not simple at the Lord's table, and it's not simple in the Lord's Psalm number 137. But again, what do we expect? Pain is not that simple. Life is not that simple. Justice is not that simple. God, for heaven's sake, is not that simple. Important things, truly important things, are never simple, never easy. But so what? Our job is to keep doing what we are supposed to do. Pray, work, wait, pray in anger and pain, work for peace and justice, wait in hope for God. Pray, work, wait, keep praying, keep working, keep waiting, keep coming to God's holy word and to God's holy word made flesh, broken and somehow given back to us, showing us a better, more excellent way. God help us to do what needs to be done.